folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I am Brian Brinkman. And you are fortunate to be tuned into the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other non-jam bands we think that you might enjoy. Because we love Fish very much, we are hardcore Fish fans, we also acknowledge that sometimes fish fans have a tendency to get a bit myopic and only listen to fish, which makes their dinner conversations relatively uninteresting when you decide to bring up other bands. So we're going to do something about it. Yes, we are your dinner party assistants here, and this is our 14th episode, and we are focusing on the recent uh, fish run at Dick's in Commerce City, Colorado. We're going to be talking about the 46 days from September 3rd, 2017. Basically, the way this thing works, we break down uh, a particular fish jam, talk a bit about the history of the song, the way the song was performed during that particular show, talk a little bit about the show, the run that surrounded it, give you guys a little bit of a historical context, and then we break down the jam by way of four to six songs. Uh, we have a couple different themes that we utilize. And basically, we're trying to bring you songs that we think, for one reason or the other, either sonically induced or some larger theme associated with the song um, that you would enjoy if you like this particular fish song. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include... Killer tracks on less than killer albums, the wah pedal, and did we really need dicks in 2017? And on that note, let's get to the fish. probably asking yourself why are they covering the 46 days from dicks when there was an amazing hour-long suite on 9-1-2017 that's a great question that's a very good question so the reason that we're covering this song and we're going to talk a little bit about this um first and foremost this is a phenomenally filthy 46 days not quite a type 2 jam it's more like a type 1.5 jam it almost gets there there's a moment in that jam where it sounds like Paige is leading Trey out into the unknown and we're about to get a massive 15 to 20 minute first set jam that everyone's going to go crazy about but then it doesn't get there it goes right back into 46 days and in a sense this is really emblematic of the dicks run as a whole and this is one of the filthiest versions of 46 Days in recent memory. The wah-wah pedal use in the last three minutes or so, it's absolutely devastating. It's face-melting. I mean, this is dirty, like, 1972 Times Square. Make of that what you will. But it's 
it's so gnarly it almost hurts. Uh, you know, I've, I will take first set jams like this any day of the week, and it's it's a very good example of uh, Trey's high quality playing during this Dix run. He's quite focused. There's a lot of color. There's a lot of hose, and it's very fun just to hear him completely really go off. Like one of the few times I can think of him just going off and doing like a pure standing on top of the mountain solo was uh, playing the Bowie cover, the Moon Age Daydream uh, yes. on night one of Baker's Dozen. Totally. And this kind of has some of that similar Mick Ronson just like utter abandon. Like I'm in my bedroom, I'm flexing in front of the mirror and nobody's here with me and I'm just going to destroy. Yeah. And you know, 46 days has always struck me as when they played in the way that they did on this night, it's about as close as you're going to get to seventies arena rock fish. It just kind of has like a cock rock feel to it. And like, I just, it's just a, a full-on rock song, and this 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 one is very comparable to um, some of the more heavy rock versions of the song. Um, a couple examples that we came up with uh, throughout 46 Days' career: um, 215, 2003 from Las Vegas; uh, 622, 2010, a really solid version from Great Woods; uh, 72, 2010 from Charlotte. Um, that fall uh, from uh, Colorado, uh, the 10-12-2010 version is one of my personal favorite uh, 46 Days. The When they come back into the 46 Days yelling section, it's as if like Trey and Fishman are just trying to top each other and it goes back into an absolutely blistering jam. Um, what other ones do you have, Dave? Got December 31st, 2011, which not a good New Year's show. Maybe the worst one they've ever played, but a very good version of, uh, of 46 Days. Yeah. Got July 1st, 2012. December 29th, 2012. Um, that was the second night of the Garden Run in 2012. Independence Day 2014, uh, July 4th, 2014 from SPAC. Very good version. And we've got July 18th, 2016, and this past year also July 18th, 2017. Yeah, and 46 Days is one of those rare songs, one of those rare fish songs that can jam and rock, and few would care either way. This can go into a type 2 jam, or it can be a really compact 6 to 8 minute long song. And personally, I'm happy with it either way. Uh, it to me, it rarely fails to deliver. I certainly like it in the first set. When it's in the second set, they tend to do more interesting things with it. True. From a jamming standpoint, there have been some really phenomenal jams off of 46 Days. Um, I believe the debut version. I could be wrong. I'm 99% sure. Uh, January 2nd, 2003 from Hampton spun off into like a 22-minute really really pretty version um, later that summer at Deer Creek uh, July 21st 2003 is a great version in the middle of a very fluid second set that features some excellent jamming and uh, is overshadowed by uh, two great shows that follow it and an excellent three night run at Deer Creek um, the It Festival features a near 40 minute 46 days that um works a lot 
a lot like a summer 1995 jam, but features some really interesting segments in it. Feels like a uh, overview of the entire summer 2003 tour, um, and then rounding out 2.0. Uh, 617 2004 from Brooklyn, a version that opens the second set and then goes into Possum in a really smooth, uh, silky se- uh, segue. It's a very, that one's very much an oxy jam. I was at that show. Yeah, very, very much of an oxy jam. And then even in, in 3.0, there's been some great jams. What are what are some of the ones you, you know of in 3.0, Dave? August 15th, 2009, certainly. Um, November 18th, of 2009. And we've got August 15th, 2015. That was uh, night one at Mayweather Post where that goes into a blissful D major jam where it sounds like he's going to go into free like seven or eight times. He never does, which yeah. is cool. <laughs> then uh, the version from Magnaball is great, August 22nd, 2015. Then we have September 4th, 2015. And then uh, Baker's Dozen version august 1st 2017 so kind of taking a step back from 46 days talking a little bit about this particular night but the entire uh dicks run as a whole um so this night 993 was the final show of a really excellent summer 2017 tour it was also the 21st show at dicks but you know from the standpoint of the tour I mean, I think we've talked about this on our Baker's Dozen podcasts. Um, 2017, 2015, 2013, 2012. Those are kind of the summer tours that stand on their own here in 3.0. Really, really strong playing throughout. And it just kind of goes without saying how much of an accomplishment the Baker's Dozen was. Um, That all said, this is kind of an up-and-down tour closer. Uh, and it kind of works with the overall Dick's run here. This tour closer felt to me a little bit more on par with, say, 818, 2010, 91, 2013, 831, 2014, as um, in terms of kind of up and down tour closers where it didn't seem like the band totally knew what to do with the end of this tour, um, versus you got 94, 2011, 92, 2012. 11 mm. 2, 14, 9 6, 15, and 9 4, 16 as some of the strongest 3.0 um, tour closers. What did you think about kind of this show and the Dick's run overall in terms of capping off summer 2017? I thought sort of this show was representative of the entire Dick's 2017 run and that it almost got there but could never really break out of the Baker's Dozen Shadow. Yeah. Aside from um, Friday night was fire. I mean, you could even if you wanted to say that the second set of the Friday night show was the best set in summer 2017. I wouldn't necessarily agree, but I wouldn't think you were crazy. I mean, that was <laughs> an extremely good show. And then after that, with the second and third night, it's sort of um, more so the second night than the third night, but it kind of had a bit of a little little bit of an anticlimax sort of like a feeling of what now i think totally agree and i was at dicks uh and i caught a couple of the baker's dozen shows and um i mean first and foremost being in colorado uh is always gonna 
be a ton of fun um, and great to just kind of go hiking throughout the day and really explore Colorado and explore Denver. And the vibe at Dick's, um, for anybody who hasn't been there, I would definitely recommend it as a fish destination. It's easy enough to get to. It's like being at a festival with the amenities of a city right nearby. Um, it's just a fantastic overall experience, and it really adds to any fish show, regardless what it's like. Um, that said, you definitely could kind of tell the air felt like it was being let out a little bit on the second and third night. You could really compare Friday to the second set from July 26th, which yes. was Powdered Night, night five. That was the Karini Mr. Completely 1999 steam. Yeah, I felt the same way. Just like a very compact, like almost like a vinyl that you just put on, walk away, you listen to. There's no reason to skip ahead at all. Um, I would say as well, it was, it was a top five show I've, I've ever seen. Um, 15 minute plays on opener, Breath and Burning that I kind of shrug at and then it jams again. Really good free, another killer first set tube. Um and then that No Man's Carini goes. I mean, just very top-quality fish. But definitely Saturday, um, the rare show where that first set flows away the second set. Um, yeah, the first set of Saturday was very good. Very, very good. But Big, simple opener. The first Reba ever at Dick's. Well-placed, well-played sand. Very, very excellent Wolfman's. Um, Set two is kind of just a standard rocker, uh, very killer setless. I don't know if I really need to say much more about it. In that second set, the Choctaw's Torture, despite being type one, is actually very, very good type one. It gets really? pretty, pretty dark, pretty air raid siren-like before they bring it back around. Uh, and then Sunday, we kind of touched on this a little bit. It has elements of a really great show and kind of elements of a mid-tour, very standard affair. You got a Buffalo Bill opener. Everybody loves a rarity. Um, you got most events aren't planned midway through the second set, or excuse me, through the first set, which I know I flipped a couple of bar stools and bar tables when I was watching it on the webcast. Uh, uh, the final night of the Baker's Dozen was very thrilled to catch it again. Very torrid bathtub gin to end the second set, and then um, set two begins what I might what I might argue is the jam of the weekend out of Down with Disease. That was everything I asked for out of a jam. That one gets very Floyd, very uh, very umagumma yeah. species of creatures vibrating with a picked type uh, type psychedelia. It was very very good. Very psychedelic. I would kind of say it was my counterpart to. Uh, the song I heard the ocean sing that I saw at uh, Baker's Dozen, you know that from was, Jimmy's Night, right? Yeah, they both just very, very disjointed, very weird, very psychedelic. Um, kind of that is what I look for in a fish show. I mean, that's 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 what I, I, I want out of it. Um, great light, really good rock and piper, and then uh, meat stick, and meat stick literally follows me wherever I go. I don't know why I've got I haven't seen a fish run since 2014 without uh, getting at least one meat stick in a, in a run of shows and I just would love to never hear it again <laughs> yeah I mean I'm not sure if anybody from the fish organization or fish themselves listens to this podcast 
if they do, I just want to tell them with all due respect, if you ever thinking about playing meat, li- uh, meat stick in the second set, just don't. <laughs> it just stops the momentum dead in its tracks. It's six minutes of goofiness. There's nowhere to go once you do it. Play it in the first set. Make it the encore. Um, I saw an opener at Meat Stick. I think uh, Mullen Center in 2010 was kind of cute, but just don't play it in the second set. Yeah, I. Uh, it's like there's like certain dead songs I don't ever want to hear in the second set. I saw I saw a really great version of the Baker's Dozen that that went to an ambient jam, but uh, yeah, the last uh, the last five fish runs I've done. I've gotten at least one, and I'm just like, man, can I just make it through one run without getting meat sticked? <laughs> just one. You know, it was the New Year's gig and the New Year's gag in 2010. It's a fun song. It did the whole thing with the. Um, it played a role at Cyprus, right? Those mm-hmm. they were trying to set the record for doing the meat stick dance at Cyprus. Uh, as we go, but it definitely they came on to a meat stick. Uh, over a recording at site. Oh, that was not as we go. Oh, okay, okay. And then they fed a bunch of meat sticks to Father Time to get him to pedal to the Millennium. Yeah, I mean, it, I think they closed Big Cypress with meat stick. It's, it's. Don't get me wrong. It's a charming, hilarious. It served its purpose. I just don't need to hear it midway through a second set when, uh, hey, when Tweezer hasn't been played. Let's just uh, let's let's uh, say it like it is. Just to sum up, dicks. Certainly the Friday night show could have gone toe-to-toe with any of the Baker's Dozen shows. It might have, had they played that at Baker's Dozen, it probably would have even been in the top five. Saturday night was clearly the Saturday night special. Sunday was reasonably good. Between, certainly between Saturday and Sunday, if you want to play God and piece together your own set list, there's one very, very good show between those two. And yet, coming after Baker's dozen, the whole affair kind of had a little bit of a, a little bit of a hangover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with that synopsis, let's listen to the forty-six days from Sunday night from Dicks.
version of 46 Days or Night 3 of Dicks. And that's going to lead us into our first segment, which would be killer songs from less than killer albums or why we need playlists. And sort of the 46 Days was a fantastic jam from that first set. So that's your killer song. The show, less than killer. And as we said, you could make um, a very good single show out of these two shows. So this is why you can put your your playlist together. So what I'm going to do is talk about a band called Preoccupations. This is a Canadian indie rock band. And they actually used to be called Viet Cong. And they were... Um, a Canadian post-punk band that formed from the ashes of uh, the late 2000s band called Women. And when they called themselves Viet Cong, they really they meant no ill will with the name. They thought it sounded kind of cool. They did it absentmindedly. However, many people happened to disagree. In fact, there was a show they were supposed to play at Oberlin University. Actually, that's Oberlin College, I think. The show was canceled because basically the student group that put it on, there were complaints saying, you know, for many who were in Vietnam and suffered under the Viet Cong, the name is very insensitive. We can't do this. So they got the wrong kind of press on the indie rock blogs. As such, they apologize and they changed their name to Preoccupations. That being said, their debut album, uh, the first Viet Cong self-titled, that was my favorite album from 2015. Um, it was sort of similar to a slightly lower five version of the Horus Primary Colors, which we've discussed on this podcast in the past. Careful listeners will know that I really love myself some shoegaze with like post-punk music and the first Viet Cong record. It checked off all my boxes. It's gothy shoegaze, post-punk bass lines and droning lead vocals with an excellent rhythm section, uh, very rhythmic and quite epic. They sounded dire, intense, and the majority of the first album was about death in some fashion, but uh, when I saw them live, they cracked jokes on stage, they were really funny in interviews, so who knows? I mean, to hear that first record, you'd think that they were so down on themselves that they wouldn't have it in to put out a second record. But they did, and I was incredibly psyched for the first record where they called themselves Preoccupations. And it's not bad. I mean, it's subjectively fine, but it really, to me, it fell short. Uh, first of all, it only has nine songs, two of which happen to be one minute long. And there's one song which is 11 minutes long, but the last five minutes are ambient noise. The whole thing kind of feels more like an EP versus a proper album. And the songs, they're shorter, they're not quite as hooky, and they, you know, they sort of zip by without leaving much of an impression. And the rhythm section, which was uh, by far the strongest aspect of uh, the previous record, isn't given that much to do. And with these song titles in this album, there's anxiety, monotony, degraded, fever. I mean, you could say these guys are a little bit... I guess, out of touch with their feelings. And I mean, if the first album was a downer, the second was even more so. That being said, the second song on the album called Monotony 
it's a shimmering echo in the bunnyman sounding banger. I mean, they wear it wears its influences on its sleeve, like the best preoccupation songs tend to do. But you know, it's a catchy. It's very much a pop hit. I think it's my favorite song on the album, and it certainly uh, made my list for I thought was the best songs of 2016, despite the fact that the album surrounding it wasn't that good. So we think that you will absolutely like Preoccupations. We would recommend the first album highly, and we will recommend this song, Monotony, highly as well. So we're going to play it for you right now. Preoccupations, Dave. I uh, too love the Viet Cong record from 2015. It was my number five favorite album of the year, and hope that they can continue making fantastic music, albeit under a different name. Um, all right, we're going to talk about a band and specifically a song that is incredibly near and dear to my heart. The band we are going to talk about is called the Silver Jews. The song that we are going to talk about is Suffering Jukebox. Why do you know this song? This is a song that birthed your fair co-host's Twitter handle. It's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. songs of all time. So Silver Jews. So around the time of the founding of Pavement in the late 1980s, um, Bob Nastanovich and uh, Stephen Malcolmus teamed up with poet and cartoonist David Berman to write and record Songs as the Silver Jews. Didn't go very far for the first 10 years, and Pavement took off and became one of the biggest, one of the most important bands of the 90s. Um, The naming of the band has always attracted attention. David Berman 
claimed that he stole it from a billboard that was simply advertising silver jewelry. David Berman has been the only consistent member of the group throughout their 20-year run with Malcolmus, uh, uh, Nastanovic, and uh, Will Oldham, who's also known as Bonnie Prince Billy, uh, and William Tyler, who we featured in Episode 5, really great guitarists, um, have been passing members among almost 20 other artists. Uh, They've taken turns filling out the band. Only his wife... Cassie Berman has lasted more than a few albums. So this is really one of those groups that is centered around one specific figure who gets musicians to play uh, on various records. And the Silver Jews like to keep things very loose and almost a little bit sloppy. So it almost caters to them that he const- that they constantly have a revolving door of musicians. Um, the Silver Jews were around in most Productive between about 1997 and 2008. And David Berman broke the band up in early 2009 with a farewell show that was planned for January 31st, 2009 at the Bluegrass Underground Caves in McMinnville, Tennessee. Only 300 general missions tickets were made available, and Berman promised there to play his 15 favorite Silver Juice songs. The reason for them breaking up was because David Berman feared that if they kept playing together, he would write the answer song to R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People. Really? <laughs> yeah. I did not know that until just now. <laughs> I can name five R.E.M. songs worse than Shiny Happy People. But, yeah. It's... It, was, it was the great fear. He was also, I think he attempted to kill himself two or three times, so there's probably good reason. Yeah, that, that. Yeah, that, that was, I was aware of. Anyway. Um, Silver Jews are one of those bands that you really either love or hate, you get or you don't completely understand at all. Um, David Berman sings with, like, the most biting sarcasm that I've ever heard. And what's more is his sarcasm is about death, materialism, infidelity, suicide, being in a coma, drug use, and occasional spurts in prison. He really tackles... um, dark subjects and a very dark uh, humor. He is one of my favorite songwriters and he's one of the best songwriters ever at turning a phrase. Um, And his deadpan delivery can lull you into a sleep before a single line will just snap you awake and will have you in complete awe. A few examples. In 1984, I was hospitalized for approaching perfection. Marry me, leave Kentucky, Come to Tennessee, cause you're the only ten I see. Might be my favorite line that's ever been written in in, uh, in lyrics. Um, I'm lightning, I'm rain. It's frightening. I'm not the same. These are just a few examples of his brilliance, and they're scattered throughout their whole catalog. It's absolutely incredible songwriter. Um, the reason for this album song's inclusion here is uh, all of their albums, if you go on to Pitchfork, are rated as a solid seven or better. Most of them are in the high eights. But this, their final record, uh, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, which came out in 2008, it was uh, given somewhere in, in the mid sixes. Many thought at the time that the band sounded exhausted and tired, and few were thrilled by the lyrics this time around. For me, this was my intro to the Silver Jews. I was passed this record by a very close friend, and I'll always have a very soft spot for the album. 
Though I do admit now, after listening to them and diving deep in their catalog, um, that it does pale in some comparison to, say, Bright Flight or American Water or even Tanglewood Numbers. Those are their probably three best records. That said, the song Suffering Jukebox is one of the best songs I've ever heard in my entire life. Lyrically, it sums up exactly how I've always felt about music I truly love. It's an homage to a forgotten jukebox in in a dive bar. It's as sincerely sad as the Jews ever allowed themselves to be and an honest testament to the passage of time and forgotten memories we all move on from. When I started a music blog in 2010, it was the perfect title for the way I was trying to present my music to the world. And when I joined Twitter a year later, it followed me along and is with me still. And it is one of my favorite songs ever. I hope it will become one of your favorite songs ever. And I would definitely encourage you guys to check out The Silver Jews. And I hope that you enjoy Suffering Jukebox.
Okay. First of all, before we get to new album recommendations, I just wanted to say that uh, I, too, love The Silver Jews. And I think that Brian and myself got acquainted when I noticed his Twitter handle and I said, assume that suffering juke like the Silver Juice song. And he wrote back and said, yeah. And that's all she wrote. I think that you're right. I think that is the further way we got connected. So, that, so my, my Twitter handle is the reason why we have a podcast is what you can say. Were it not for David Berman and his whimsy, there would be no Beyond the Pond. <laughs> so thanks, David Berman. Anyway, in terms of new album recommendations, I have been listening recently to this band that's called Partner, and the album is called In Search of Lost Time. It is uh, They have a full band when they play live shows, but at heart, this consists of a female, two-pa- uh, female two-piece of Josie Karen and Lucy Niles. I guess you could call them Canadian almost comedy rockers, who are proudly queer, and they sing about things like being extremely stoned at the supermarket, loving daytime television, uh, finding things in your roommate's drawers that you wish you hadn't because you were being nosy, and also tales of uh, like coming out and the challenges of growing up gay in high school. And throughout all this, they somehow they sound like the Smashing Pumpkins. They take these inherently funny topics and add these huge '90s grunge riffs with this like wicked soloing. I know, like Josie Karen, she's a bit of a guitar hero. She has like a double neck guitar that she plays live. And the first half of the album leans much more um, like big arena rock, where side two, side B is slightly more of a power pop affair. Which actually kind of reminds me of a fellow female stoned Ramones worshiper, Colleen Green, whose 2015 album, I Want to Grow Up, rules. And uh, Partner, they're actually, they know they're funny, or at least they're trying to be, because the album actually has skits. It's like a 90s Dr. Dre album. There's a... a series of like phone calls that they record is like 30, 45 second segments that are listed as skits on the record that tie it all together. And it's, uh, it's very good. It's almost like if, uh, the girls, if Abby and Alana from the TV show broad city and comedy central, they were Canadian and had a rock band. They probably sound a lot like partner. It's that kind of humor. Cause it's catchy. It's well-produced and, um, got a lot to say. It's very, very fun. So I've got a record from a long, long time musician, Tony Allen. Uh, the record is called The Source. Um, this is a jazz Afrobeat, Afrobeat hybrid record from uh, Tony Allen's Fela Kuti's longtime drummer. And this is an album that literally every single Fish fan should listen to. It's equal part late night horn dysfunctional rhythm slog. Uh, and it works like a giant country horn show uh, gone type two. It's got such a nasty groove to it throughout the record. And the rhythm section, Tony Allen's drumming, just drives the record forward in such a dysfunctional way that kind of that always has your ears perking up and always has you just kind of switching up how you're moving to it. Um, what really makes this record compelling, so it's instrumental album 
it's very horn-based elements to it. The percussion is what really drives it forward. But there's really compelling segments of truly hooked-up songwriting, such as in the opener of Moody Boy, the two-minute mark, um, they drop in from this atmospheric swirl into just an excellent strutting funk groove. Or later on War of Dance, there's this hazy sax lead that literally sounds like what I imagine a Harlem hotel room at 2 a.m. filled with smoke and littered with liquor bottles in like 1956 would sound like. Song Push and Pull spins out from a very rhythmic center point to a waltz like a brass band in the streets of the French Quarter on a warm and steamy Sunday morning. It's just the the imagery that comes out of this music is unbelievable. Um, Alan's career is a half century old, and he clearly has the experience and the chops to seemingly reinvent Afrobeat and jazz with his own style, allowing his drums to lead the entire album, driving creatively forward and breaking sonic walls throughout. Um, but again, the songwriting is really what you keep coming back to in this record. It's not a chops record. This is an album that's filled with 10 unique songs that you just want to keep coming back to and keep listening to over and over again. Um, all the songs on the record were written by Alan as well as his saxophonist and a two-craft, very diverse record that never feels like an exercise. Um, it flows from one song to another in a very uh, synergistic way that makes for really compelling listening all the way through. Um, and at the end of it, it just sounds so effortless for as difficult as these songs must be to write and then to play. These guys are lifer musicians and they play with a way that it just comes out of every orifice and it just, it flows out into the music. Um, would definitely recommend this record to any of our listeners. It's a, a great stepping point beyond fish um, into the world of jazz, into the world of percussion, into the world of funk, into the world of Afrobeat. Um, just couldn't say enough about this record. It's been really, really great to listen to these last couple of weeks. Okay, and we're going to uh, segue here into segment two, just a showcase regarding the almighty Wawa pedal, which absolutely makes its presence known in the September 3rd, 2017, 46 days, because Trey can, cannot get enough. He's channeling Jimi Hendrix and Band of Gypsies in this sense. So the song I'm going to talk about is not so much a song as it's three live performances cribbed together. It is called Sivad. This is by Miles Davis off of his seminal live album, Live Evil. And basically the whole purpose of this segment is... How much Wawa can the human ear possibly stand? <laughs> In this performance, Miles Davis's trumpet is hooked up to a wah. Keith Jarrett's Fender Rose is hooked up to a wah. And uh, John McLaughlin of Mahavishnu Orchestra fame, his guitar is also very likely hooked up to a wah pedal. So this album is a 1970 showcase for Miles Davis's electric period which is marked by lots of white noise and extremely heavy grooves. And Sivad, which I guess is Davis backwards, is the first song off of his live Evil album. This was originally released in 1971. 
And the song itself is a compilation of what I believe is three different performances recorded at the venue The Cellar Door in Washington, D.C. in December of 1970. And there... Later, it was edited in the studio by his producer, Teo Macero, who uh, certainly Macero played a sizable role in editing and mixing Miles Davis' electric studio albums, some of which include In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, and On the Corner. He worked as a producer for Columbia Records and uh, you know, did a lot of work in that time. So this album, Live Evil, is actually reissued my freshman year of college in 1997, and I was reading about it in various jazz publications at that time. And where I went to Rutgers, the Mason Gross School of the Arts had a huge vinyl collection of jazz records, so they actually had the original 1971 release on vinyl. So in lieu of buying it on CD, I would go to the library where they give you these huge headphones and I would sit there in a cubicle that had a record player in it and my face would slowly melt. I may or may not have gone to the library in various stages of sanity or whatnot and just would sit there and listen to Live Evil and think, my God. And if you like this, Back in 2005, uh, Columbia, they released a very sizable box set comprising the cellar door sessions from December of 1970, which is multiple hours worth of brutally wah-infused jazz fusion. And uh, what Fillmore East was to the Grateful Dead in February of 1970, the cellar door was to Miles Davis in December of 1970, and that he just burned it to the ground. I mean, actually... Um, Miles Davis actually played the Fillmore East with his electric band in June of 1970 with a pretty similar lineup to what was here. Uh, those shows were also released, but in terms of funk and musicality, for my money, the cellar door sessions in December, they are better. And I mean, at this point, Miles's band, now it reads like, you know, sort of like a who's who of jazz titans. You had Jack DeJeanette on drums, Keith Jarrett on Rhodes and electric organ, John McLaughlin on guitar, Erto Moreira on percussion, and Michael Henderson on electric bass. He was 19 years old at the time, fresh out of Stevie Wonder's touring band, and he also put out some soul records of his own as a band leader in the mid-70s and early 80s, some of which have these uh, hilarious album covers. If you want to Google image Michael Henderson in Slingshot, I'm just warning you, you might not like what you see. But uh, quite possibly the funkiest bass lines known to man are here, and the wah-wah pedal, it just rattles your brain. And if you enjoy getting your face melted off by the Trey Wah Assault in 46 Days... You should find something to enjoy here. It kind of sounds like a far more unhinged version of a fall 1997 fish wah-wah guitar jam. Think of Black Eyed Katie and LSD and amphetamines, both of which Miles Davis is probably on in 1970. So without further ado, I'm going to play the first song off of the live evil record called Sivad. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you. 
Dave for once again walking us through Miles Davis as well as your own personal musical awakening when you were in college. Uh, Miles Davis gives us legit credibility here. Um, last song that we're going to talk about here is by a group called The Strangers. The song is, I believe it's pronounced Onye Ije. It's off of a compilation that came out last year called Wake Up You, The Rise and Fall of Nigerian Rock from 1972 to 1977. It was a two-volume release. This was off of volume number one. Um, This features Nigerian psychedelic funk rock bands from the post-Civil War era, and it is um, probably the best use of the wah this song is in a record filled with excellent wah playing. Um, this record as a whole highlights a time when many Nigerian rock bands were being poached by major labels in the United States and the UK, uh, notably following Fela Kuti being signed to Parlophone. Um, this is the golden age of this genre of music in Nigeria. These songs all bleed sunshine and charcoal grills loaded with salt fish and dusty back roads and blistering heat and just a communal celebration of a true boom period in a region and in a country that isn't uh, accustomed to them in the modern age. Um, this was during a time when the country was experiencing a uh, petroleum-induced post-war economic boom. And the songs reflected an era when the citizens of Nigeria found themselves out and about more dancing in clubs, while at the same time, the country had gone from a very destructive war to peace, and many of the big cultural issues have been overlooked and swept under the rug, which is really reflected throughout the album and throughout all these songs. Um, uh, from an influence standpoint, so James Brown had been a huge influence on the country's mu- on the country's music scene uh, to this point, but this was an era where there was a strong urge to craft a truly Nigerian voice of funk rock and jazz and Afrobeat. This was best exemplified by Fela Kuti. Um, But as you'll hear in this song, and if you go ahead and seek out this record, which I would highly recommend, this was one of my favorite albums of 2016, um, you'll hear what sounds like familiar music, but as a very, very um, West African, Central African uh, sound and feel to it that takes funk and rock and jazz and has a very foreign uh, um, uh, interpretation of it. It's just, it's wild to listen to. Um, The recording in many cases is very choppy and it feels like something that was just recorded down a back alley um, in in the third world. It's it's amazing. It just, it brings me back to traveling. The the sound of it, the feel of the overall record, I, I love it so much. Um, the movement throughout the compilation can really be summed up in the desire to be free and happy. This is young music made by young musicians who had just witnessed a brutal and destructive war. And while their lives would not get any easier in the long term, uh, this is a generation of people that suffered greatly by an oppressive government and by extreme poverty. Um, the music is reflective of their youthful optimism and their desire to celebrate simple pleasures with friends and family through, in many ways, very straightforward and very engaging music. So I hope that you enjoy 
Onyeje by the Strangers, and I sincerely hope you seek out Wake Up You, the Rise and Fall of Nigerian Rock. the songs we've played throughout this episode in addition to the 46 days from September 3rd 2017 the first song we heard was Monotony by Preoccupations then we heard Suffering Jukebox from the Silver Jews then we heard Sivad the first song off of the Miles Davis live evil album and then finally we heard Onye How'd that be pronounced, Brian? Onyeje. Onyeje. Okay. From Wake Up You, The Rise and Fall of Nigerian Rock, Volume 1, 1972 to 1977. And just a quick reminder of where you can find us on the web. We are active on Twitter and growing even more active at underscore beyond the pond. We have a Medium page that gets published with each episode uh, medium.com slash beyond the pond and Spotify uh, we utilize um, for we share all the songs that are available uh, on Spotify from each episode so our, we are just shy of a hundred songs now which is pretty mm. cool checked it out today lots of great very diverse music on there uh some fish on there that that is found on spotify but really would encourage you guys to go and just press play press shuffle on that there's some great material in there um and i would also encourage you to follow us on instagram at beyond the pond podcast where we um have just kind of some fun little engaging pictures as we uh as we go through uh episode to episode in terms of publishing structure, what we try to do 
is published every other Tuesday. So this episode is set to go to air, I want to say, uh, Tuesday, September 19th. Sometimes even comes out the evening before because Tuesday is generally Miley's favorite day of the week. So we need something to look forward to. Absolutely. We've got some really great episodes coming up here in uh, the next six to eight weeks. Some guests are coming on. We're very stoked about that. Going to continue messing with the formula. If there's any jams out there that you guys want to hear us dissect, please, by all means, add us. Let us know. We're more than willing to take some ideas. And before we wrap up, we just wanted to do a quick tribute to Grant Hart, the uh, drummer from Huskadu, who recently died at the age of 56 of cancer. Now, Huskadu was a band that we featured on Beyond the Pond. I believe it was in um, the episode showcasing the Reading 2013 Down with Disease at Songs That Made You Want to Run Through a Wall. We played the song Celebrated Summer. I know that Huskadu is a furious 80s post-punk band, one of my favorite bands. 56 is too young to die, and um, it's unfortunate. We would ask that you listen to as much Huskadu as possible because they were a phenomenally furious and melodic band. So rest in peace, Grant Hart. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And join us again in two Tuesdays, at which point we will go beyond the pond.